with great anticipation. We look forward to that day, then we'll all be singing in a nobler, sweeter tongue of Christ's power to save. Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn me to 2 Samuel chapter 14. 2 Samuel chapter 14 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one of the ones in the pew ahead of you, or if you're in the front row, underneath you, and uh, you'll find them on page 2 Samuel 14, and the pew Bible is on page 313, 313, about a quarter of your way through the text. Um, If you don't have a Bible at all, please take the one that you have that you'll find in front of you in the pew. We would love for you to have a Bible. If you don't have one, they're here. We have extras. Please take one of those with you. We want you to leave with a copy of God's Word if you don't have one. Or if you're interested, there's probably some in the lost and found, maybe a better one that you could just go (laughs) grab from there. You're more than welcome to do that. Uh, The 4th century, uh, Rome was ruled by an emperor. His name was Theodosius, and he claimed to be a Christian. Yet one of his decrees that he made was that 7,000 people in the city of Thessalonica were to be executed. Well, the bishops uh, uh, rose up an uh, objection to this. In fact, uh, Ambrose, who was the bishop of Milan, said to him, if you follow through with this command that you have made, this edict that you have issued, do not come to church expecting to receive communion. Well, Theodosius did it anyway and marched to the uh, church in Milan. And he pounded on the door. The door was barred against him. He pounded on the door and demanded to be let in. Ambrose said, you may not come in. Theodosius said, David was a man after God's own heart and he committed adultery and murder. And Ambrose looked at him uh, through the door and said to him, now that you have sinned like David, you must repent like David. Today what we're going to do is we're going to talk to us about how the Bible calls us to respond to the good news about Jesus Christ. And we're going to use this story in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1 and and following to do it. Uh, We have been tracing this narrative about David for a long time. This is one piece in this story. And and we can look at it on, on a number of different levels. On the one hand, 2 Samuel 14 is about the ongoing consequences that David faced because of his defection from God. We read about it in chapters 8 through 10 of 2 Samuel. David was following God. He was running after God and accomplishing great things for God. Then in chapter 11, though, over the course of, of a few weeks, he, he, he disobeyed God's commands. He abused his power. He violated one of the, the marriages of one of his most valiant soldiers. He took a woman that was not his wife into his own bed and, and then in the cover-up of all these crimes, he ordered that this soldier, this, the husband of the woman that he took to himself, be executed, murdered on the battlefield. When David was confronted about this terrible sin, he said, these terrible sins, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And we're tracing the discipline, the consequences that he experienced because of that sin. That's one level that we look at this story. On a slightly different level, maybe a little higher level, this really, this book is a story about kingship. What kind of king do God's people need? 
David is the second king that came to Israel. Uh, there's about uh, 40 more in the biblical story. What kind of king do the people need? Or how is David a better king than Saul? Uh, what distinguishes him from the king who came before him, Saul? And what will distinguish him from the kings that come after him? It's another level to look at this story. A third level that we could use to look at this story is uh, to ask the question, what does a person after God's own heart look like? What does it mean to follow God closely in the wake of a terrible defection? I know something that's true of every single person in this room. Joel mentioned it when he prayed. You don't live the life that you know you should live. So how do you respond to that? What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart who is faced with their own failures? We're going to learn a a crucial lesson about that by watching David make a terrible mistake in the life of his son Absalom. What I want to do is I want to read through the story. We're going to do like we usually often do with narratives. I'll read a little bit and then talk a little bit and read a little bit. And then, then what I want to do is I want to extract from this text a principle that appears all the way through the Bible and it presses on us. It presses us about how relationships work, not just a relationship with God, but relationships with one another. And it, it presses us too about how we fulfill the mission that God has given us as a church. On the front of our bulletin is always that phrase. Down in the lower right-hand corner, it says, cultivating followers of Christ. So how do we do that? We're going to talk about a necessary step in that process. So let's read. We're going to start and stop. We're not going to get very far. Follow me into verse 1. Joab, son of Zeritma, Zeruah knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. Do you remember the story where where we've been so far? So Absalom is one of David's sons. And in the last chapter, uh, there were three children of uh, David involved in the story. There was Absalom and his full sister Tamar and his, their half-brother Amnon. And Amnon fell desperately in love with Tamar, his sister. And uh, it, it wasn't so much love as it was desperately in lust. And he in, uh, br- tricked her into his bedroom and he assaulted her. And, and she became a desolate woman because of this. And Absalom rose to the defense of his sister. It took him two years. He plotted, he planned, he seethed. And after two years, he executed, he murdered his brother. And because of that, he had to run. Now three years have passed, and David misses Absalom. Joab here, this is the story of Joab's intervention. And the question for Joab is, how can I convince David that it's okay to let this murderer back into the, the family fold? That he can come back to the city and, and be with us? How can I convince David that it's okay for him to come home? So the conflict that's in this story is the conflict between justice and mercy. Justice demands that Absalom be punished for murdering his brother, but David longs to show Absalom mercy because he loves him. He's his son. He wants to show him mercy. This dilemma is is central, of course, to the whole Bible. One of the great questions all the way through the Bible is, how can God show mercy to sinners? We deserve God's justice. God is a God of justice. He is, he is undeniably committed to fixing the world that we have broken. And part of the problem is that I am 
part of the broken world. I deserve God's justice. But the Bible also tells us that God is rich in mercy. I don't know that any parent has ever said this. Maybe you have. If you have, you can come and tell me about it later. But there's an old a trope about a, a parent who's about ready to spank their child, their son or their daughter, for some violation in the home. And the parent says to the child those famous lines, right? This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Heard that line before? Every child then should turn to their parents at this point in time and say, well, if it's going to hurt us both, then why are we doing this? Right? <laughs> You know, let's just call the whole thing off. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt me. There's no point in continuing, is there? Right? Uh, What do you do? There's this conflict between justice and mercy. So here's what Joab did. We're going to read it. He goes to the city of Tekoa. I I, I don't know if there's any particular reason why Tekoa is mentioned other than the fact that it's far enough away that David probably wouldn't recognize her. And Joab hires a woman who may be among a group of professional sages, a professional wise woman. Regardless, he hires a woman who is quick on her feet and gives her instructions. Look what verse 2 says. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you're in mourning, dress in mourning clothes, and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman, went, uh, when the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor. And she said, help me, your majesty. Remember, it's the king's job to ensure that justice is done. So this woman comes in the guise of seeking justice or help. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 5, the king asked her, what is troubling you? She said, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom we killed. Then we will get rid of the heir as well. They would put out the only burning coal that I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. So here's the trouble. Should two sons, one kills the other, like Absalom and Amnon, uh, Absalom deserves justice, and this, this murdering son deserves justice. In fact, she makes reference to the Old Testament's plan for justice. In the case of a capital crime like this, a murder, the family had the right to demand justice. And, and apparently her relatives are demanding that her son be put to death. But the problem is that if, if her son dies, if her son is executed for his crime, She'll have no means of support. There'll be no heir. Her husband will have no legacy, no heritage. Um, There's going to be no warmth in her life. He's the only burning coal that she has left. So what should David do? There is, on the one hand, the need for justice for the murderer. On the other hand, there's mercy for this woman. So what's he going to do? Now, this story may remind you of another story in the Bible. Can you think of a story in the Bible with two brothers 
who are out in the field and one kills the other. Deliberately here, uh, this woman's story echoes what happened between Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Let's, let's read that story. Shall we keep your finger in 2 Samuel 14 and flip back with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Genesis, of course, is the first book in the uh, Hebrew scriptures in the Bible. So right after the table of contents, you'll find Genesis 4. And I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Cain and Abel in conflict. And what I want you to see here is what God does to Cain, how God responds to Cain, because the woman wants David to do something similar. Look at verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Of course, that would make a great title for a movie, wouldn't it? East of Eden. Well, so here's the story. One brother kills the other, and uh, uh, God protects Cain and allows him to live. So the woman is, is hinting to David that this is what he ought to do with her case. She's kind of laid a, not laid a trap for him, but she's sending an invitation for him. And David, going back to 2 Samuel 14, opts for mercy. Verse 8, the king said to the woman, go home and I will issue an order in your behalf. Verse 9, the woman's not this sad. She wants, she wants assurance. She wants David. She's going to make David swear an oath about this. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, verse 9, Let my lord the king pardon me and my family, and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, If anyone says anything to you, bring them to me, and they will not bother you again. She said, Then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. And now he swears an oath by God's name. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Now hair is going to be important in this passage, so keep in mind that that's there. Um, and, and now, uh, let's keep reading here. Then the woman, verse 12, said, Let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, when he lets my son go free, does he not convict himself for the king has not brought back his banished son. She's saying to the king, you're going to let my son go free and you swore by God's name that you would do it, but you're not letting Absalom come back. Verse 14, like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. 
And now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the king. Perhaps he will grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. And now your servant says, may the word of my lord, the king, secure my inheritance. For my lord, the king, is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the lord, your God, be with you. Now, she uses flattery here, doesn't she? Oh, you're as wise as an angel, right? But I'm interested in her argument. Is, is her argument true? So the point of the comparison of the story is, if you allow my son to be executed for murdering his brother, I'll have no heir. And you are cutting off Absalom. You're not letting him come back. And the nation of Israel is, has no king. There's no one to rule. Absalom is apparently the next in line. There's no heir apparent. And, and you're depriving... You, if my son dies, I'll be deprived of a legacy. If you don't bring Absalom back, you're depriving the nation of, of, of a king, of, a, of a, the crown prince. And she says it's okay to bring him back. Why is it okay to bring him back? She has two reasons. Verse 14, two reasons to bring him back. One, we're all worthy of death. Um, we have all broken God's rules. There is no one here who lives up to God's standards. You don't even live up to your own standards, do you? Your own expectations for you? <laughs> when, when your alarm goes off in the morning, does it occur to you? Do you think about all the things that you either have to or want to do that day? You wake up and you think, yeah, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And then by like 2.30 in the afternoon, you have no will to live, right? What's the point of going on? All these dreams that I have about what I was going to accomplish this morning, they have vanished you don't live up to your own expectations of what sort of life you're going to lead. And you don't live up to God's expectations either. We are all worthy of death. So that's the first part of our argument. Everybody's guilty. But then she says that God rescues us. He makes a way for the banished to come home. That's a beautiful image. God devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Now, is that true? Absolutely. Praise God, it's true. That God devised a way for the banished to come home. We, we've sung about it this morning. The Bible is the story of God's unfolding plan to definitively rescue us from ourselves. It's true and it's awesome. But is it complete? Is what she said complete? Is there anything missing from her argument? Well, let's keep reading here. Verse 18. Then the king said to the woman, Don't keep me from the answer to what I'm going to ask you. Let my lord the king speak, the woman said. The king asked, Isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? He sees a bit of him scraggly or scrawny, and every last inch of him is covered with hair. Everyone knows he's good-looking. He's very good-looking. Now, is that good or is that bad to be so good-looking? Um, it's not bad to be attractive. Uh, some of us are just blessed that way. We can't help it, right? Just runs in the family. We can't help it. I have so many relatives in this room, and I say that being good-looking runs in the family, and I don't get any amen at all. It's a good thing we're so good-looking. Apparently, we're not very smart. So uh, being this 
attractive in Samuel. Now think about in Samuel. Is being good-looking in Samuel a problem or not? The problem with being good-looking like this in Samuel is that it's a distraction. Saul was good-looking, but he was not a good king. Remember what 1 Samuel 16, 7 says? People look at the outward appearance. Don't look at people, just look at people's outward appearance. Uh, People look at the outward appearance, but God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. So what do we know about Absalom's heart from this passage? We know that he's vain. How do I know that he's vain? Because he weighs his hair. Admittedly, I don't know this very much about the subject. (laughs) Right? It's heavy. Is there anyone in the room who has weighed their hair? After you cut your hair, do you ask the barber or the, uh, whoever cuts your hair, do you ask them to sweep it up and put it on the scale so that you can weigh it? Some of you have measured it, the length of it, because you donated to Locks of Love or something like that, but to weigh it? And he does it every year. It's a practice, and everybody knows about it. Now, admittedly, it's impressive. It weighs five pounds. Can you imagine walking around with a sack of flour on your head every day? Right? I mean, it's heavy. But everybody knows it. There's two men, other men in the Bible, who are notable for their hair. You know who they are? Esau is one of them, and Samson is the other. It's not good company to be in. So Absalom's good-looking. He's vain about his good looks, though. There's a second thing that we know about him. He's got children. Now, why is that important? Because he's got a dynasty already lined up. The book of Samuel is about David, the promise that God made to David about his descendants, the family that would come from him. And Absalom, if he wants to be king, he's already got a dynasty. He's already got sons lined up to rule after him. And then the third thing we learn about uh, uh, Absalom here, he's got a daughter and her name is Tamar. Ooh. Tamar, this beautiful little girl, named after her aunt, her aunt, the one who was abused, the aunt, the aunt that became a desolate woman, the aunt that David did not defend, but Absalom took justice into his own hands to defend. And every time he looks at this little girl, he remembers what David didn't do and what he had to do. That's how we're introduced to Absalom, and actually our impression of him only gets worse. Look at verse 28. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants sent the field, set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so I can send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then I want to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So what do you think of Absalom now? 
He's kind of a jerk, isn't he? He's impatient, he's petulant, he's demanding, he's self-centered. He burns a field to get attention. Can you think of anybody else in the Bible who had long hair who burned a barley field? This is just what Samson did. Judges. The other problem, the, the main, I think the crux problem of this whole passage is in verse 32. It says, um, if I am guilty of anything, let me be put to death. Well, you are guilty of something, Absalom. You should know that. But apparently, he doesn't believe he's guilty of any crime. That, I think, is the crux of this passage. And it's the mistake that David makes to welcome Absalom back without any sort of acknowledgement of what Absalom has done. Absalom deserved justice. He received mercy, and in between, there was no confession of guilt, no repentance, no acknowledgement that what he had done was wrong. When David was confronted with his sin by the prophet, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. When Saul, David's predecessor, was confronted about his sin, Saul said, it's not really my fault. He made excuses. No one confronts Absalom at all, and Absalom claims that he is innocent. So there's a key question in the Bible. What does God require of those who would receive his mercy? What does God require of those who would receive his mercy? We absolutely believe this. We absolutely believe that God has made a way for banished people to come home. But are there conditions for coming home? It's an important question, not just for our vertical relationship with God, but our horizontal relationships with others. Imagine that you have a raging conflict with your sister. You're not living at home anymore. Um, You both have your own lives, but there's just been this discord between the two of you. Are there conditions for reconciliation with her? Or what about parents and children? At this point in time, we often think about parents, or children who leave home. But, but what about parents who leave, maybe not just home, but the values that they, they taught you? They've walked away from the church. They've abandoned the faith. They, they claim not to believe any of the things that they taught you so much about when you were a little kid. What kind of relationship can you have with them? How does that work? We're in a slightly different direction. Think about an elder in a church who commits some grievous sin. Are there conditions by which he can resume his work, if at all he can resume his work? Are there conditions for coming home? In this passage, there's no real consequences for Absalom at all, and the results are disastrous. Let's read about that as we finish here, This just reading the passage. Verse 1 of chapter 15. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. <laughs> it's so funny. Jerusalem, it's like this. It's a hill. There's mountains. It's a hill country. Why is he a chariot? Who needs a chariot in this, under these conditions? And 50 guys to run ahead of you. Vain? Oh no, he's not vain at all. Absalom's actually the first Israelite mentioned uh, that owns a chariot. 
Verse 2, he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Don't treat me like a royal. I'm going to embrace you. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. The last words David says to Absalom. So he went to Hebron. Now, I have, I have questions about this. Why didn't David know what was going on? This is strange. It took four years. Four years this is happening. And David apparently has no clue about it. Think with me about the whole book of Samuel. Okay? King Saul, when David was his general, was paranoid. He was actually, Saul was paranoid. He was convinced that David was trying to take over the kingdom, and David wasn't. Now David is king, and Absalom is trying to take over the kingdom, and David doesn't seem aware of it at all. Absalom is to David what Saul thought David was to him. The contrast in the text, what a wonderfully well-told story this is. Why is David so clueless? And why isn't he suspicious? It, It took Absalom four years to fulfill this vow to God. If it takes you four years to fulfill a vow to God, it doesn't matter. It's not very important to you, is it? Go in peace. All right, verse 10. And then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets and say, Absalom is king in Hebron, 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests, quite an honor, and went quite innocently knowing nothing about the matter. Absalom took 200 of David's closest advisors so when he strikes, David will be vulnerable without wise counselors. Verse 12, while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor. Oh, Ahithophel, the wise Ahithophel. <laughs> Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. You wonder if he's willing to listen to Absalom because of what David did to Bathsheba. Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, he came from Gilo, his hometown, and so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. So Absalom deserved justice and he received mercy and in between there was nothing and disaster results. What does God require of those who would receive his mercy? This is central to our life as as a, a church is the good news about the Lord Jesus. In Christ, God's justice has been satisfied. On the cross, Jesus offered himself as the penalty, the payment for our sin. He suffered in our place on the cross. Justice has been satisfied, and through him, mercy is offered to all. 
It's the message of the New Testament. Justice has been satisfied. Mercy is offered to all. Are there any conditions for receiving that mercy? Some people say, no, there's not any conditions at all. This is what God does. This is God's job. He forgives. He just offers mercy to everybody without regard. But if that's the case, then why was Jesus himself so concerned that the message of justice satisfied and mercy offered be preached to everyone? Why did the message have to go out if it's just automatic that you receive God's mercy Why did the message have to be spread? Why did the apostles kill themselves to spread the message everywhere, to travel? And why was Paul hungry and homeless at times? He's trying to tell people about Jesus. If it's just automatically, if God's mercy is just automatically offered to people. So then why, why, what is required? What's required to receive God's mercy? It's an eternal issue. It's an eternal issue issue. You have to get this right. It's an issue over which we're prone to err. Most people, when you say to them, God is merciful, he will have mercy for you. Either they think two errors, one, oh great, just bring it on. Or they think, okay, tell me what to do. Give me a list of things to do. Our doctrinal statement says, Salvation is a gift received by faith apart from any human merit, works, or ritual. There's no works, there's no ritual, there's no merit involved. So so what is involved? Well, for the time that we have left, we're going to look at three key words that describe the response of the good news that are conditional for receiving mercy. All three of these words are used interchangeably and repeatedly throughout the New Testament. They overlap. They're slightly different, but there's a lot of overlap, so much overlap that sometimes the the Bible just uses one of these words and not the other two. The emphasis of all three of them is that the reception of God's mercy is not just a momentary transaction, but it's the beginning of a sustained relationship. It's an important difference. Not just a momentary transaction, but the beginning of a sustained relationship relationship. Johann Tietzel, do you recognize that name? Johann Tietzel was a a German priest and he was Martin Luther's first sparring partner. In fact, it was Tietzel's preaching uh, that that infuriated Martin Luther. Uh, Tetzel, Tetzel maybe is a better pronunciation. I don't know. Tetzel, I'll go with that for now was uh, traveling throughout Germany and Martin Luther heard him preach and Tetzel was selling forgiveness on behalf of the Pope indulgences is what they're called. It's not that simple, but this is what most people were were believing, that that Tetzel would would sell you forgiveness. Well, there's a story told about him. I don't know if it's true or not. I hope it is, but I'm not sure. Of a thief who came up to Tetzel one day, and the thief said to Tetzel, you're selling indulgences, you're selling forgiveness? Yes. And the thief said, how much money will it cost for me to be forgiven for all of my past sins? And Tetzel said, 2,000 gold pieces. Okay. How much will it cost for me to purchase forgiveness for all of my future sins? Tetzel said, 1,000 gold pieces. And the thief counted out 3,000 gold pieces. And he bought from Tetzel the certificate that said all of his past sins and all of his future sins were forgiven. And the thief said, you're sure this is all my future sins? Absolutely. And the thief said, I'm going to start now. And he picked out a knife 
And he said to Tetzel, give me my money back. Hmm. See, the man does not understand that, that forgiveness from God is not a momentary transaction. It is the beginning of a sustained relationship. It's more like a marriage. Vows are recited. So uh, up here I've had the privilege of, of with great joy listening to vows, marriage vows, public proclamation of love and commitment. And then the bride and groom, they publicly proclaim this and then they leave from this. I've never had a bride or groom leave and go back to their old life after they exchange vows at the front of a church. They, they don't go back to their own homes. In fact, they have new lives. They have a new life and they have this new life together. And that's the emphasis that the Bible makes when it talks about receiving God's mercy. New relationship. Three words. Here they are. The first one is the word turn. Turn. Daryl Bach defines this. I'm going to borrow his definitions. They're all good. Uh, a change of direction. A change of direction. The word turn refers to a change of direction. John the Baptist used this word quite a bit. He um, used it echoing what many of the Old Testament prophets used. They used the word turn. Look how Paul preached in Acts 14, 15. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then he wrote the Thessalonians this letter. And he said to them when they converted, they tell me how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. There is a turning. Notice it is a change of direction. It's a change of loyalty in these verses. I'm going to turn from the idols to the living God. I'm not going to worship these idols anymore. I'm going to worship God. I'm turning, I'm changing direction and turning to Him. The Bible uses that word a lot. Now, second here, another word. The Bible uses the word repent. Repent, which is a change of mind. A change of mind. Very similar to turning. This is the word that Jesus used. Matthew 4:17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. And then look at Acts 26.20. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God. There's the word used together. And demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So their, their repentance will show up in how they live. Wrapped up in this change of mind is the promise of a new life. This is because repentance doesn't just look back at forgiven sin. It looks forward to a future life with God. There has to be, in order for reconciliation, there has to be a dealing with the issue at hand that has separated you. And repentance is uh, focused on that sin that has separated you from God. Think about how this works on, on a horizontal level. If you're going to be reconciled with someone with whom you've had a conflict, there has to be a dealing with the issues involved in the conflict. You have to do something about the issue. You can't ignore them and be reconciled. Actually, the Bible tells us that, that there is a reckoning. There's two ways for followers of Jesus to reckon with that issue that separates them. On the one hand, 1 Peter 4 tells us at times we cover sins. 1 Peter 4 Verse 7, maybe, somewhere around there. 
Love covers a multitude of sins. You know, we're thoughtless people sometimes. Selfish, cranky, careless. The Bible tells us that for the sake of love, we cover sins. We cover sins. It should happen in your family all the time. Maybe it happens in your, your growth group too. Maybe after the service, somebody won't talk to you the way that you were hoping that they would talk to you. So you say, I'm just going to cover that sin, forget it. I'm going to unilaterally cover that. Sometimes, though, the issue is such that you can't just unilaterally cover that sin. And you have to, you have to talk about the, the real issue. You have to talk about that, that sin that has separated you. Now, some people make the mistake, they'll say, well, I'll cover that sin, and then they don't bury it very deep, and it keeps, keeps coming back in their mind and their heart of bitterness. Don't do that. There has to be some sort of dealing with this issue. Forgiveness offered, forgiveness re- received. Repentance has that in mind at, on a horizontal level and on a vertical level. You've got to deal with that. Now, there's one more verse I want to think about when we talk about repentance. Look at Romans 2.4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The motive for our repenting is God's kindness. It's God's kindness that leads us to uh, repent. Now let's imagine here that you're uh, on the playground and your teacher says to you, all right, we're going to play kickball and we're going to pick teams. I need two captains. And your teacher picks the kid from the class. The kid walks out in front of everybody. He's the first captain. Your thought, immediately your mind goes, do I want to be on this kid's team? He's a great athlete. Do I want him to pick me? If I'm on his team, we'll probably win, but I'm not sure if I'll get to play very much. He won't let me be first base, and I really want to be first base. Then your teacher decides to pick another captain, and your teacher points to your best friend. Picks them, and your best friend comes out and is the captain. The whole equation has changed, right? It's my best friend. She won't be mad at me when I mess up. She'll let me play first base. Uh, he'll cheer for me when I, when I, when I cross the plate. I want to be on that I want to be on my friend's team. That's exactly what I want. The gospel comes to us and it tells us about God's kindness, his love for us, his forbearance and his patience and repentance is saying to God, "Pick me! Pick me! I want to be on your team." I want to be on your team and all that it entails because of who you are. I want to be with you. Change of mind. All right, number three here, finally, faith. Faith. Trust that relies on what God has promised through Jesus. Trust that relies on what God has promised through Jesus. John 3.16, of course, is a great verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes, that whoever has faith in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What does God offer in Jesus? Eternal life. And faith is saying to him, I want the eternal life that you offer in Jesus. Now, how do all three of these words work together? Follow me here. They all work together. Repentance focuses on where I start. The Bible tells us that all of us are holding on to things. We're holding on to things that we think make us comfortable or secure, or we're holding on to sin that we think makes us happy. 
and someone comes and tells us about God, the message of what God has done for us in Jesus. So what do we do? We repent. We let go of those things. We turn, and then we lift up our empty hands to him and say, I see all that you have promised through Jesus. Will you fill my empty hands? You see how those three things work together? Now, for the rest of your life as a follower of Jesus, you're going to resist the temptation to reach back and grab those things again. All of life is about not reaching back and grabbing those things again. But you hear the gospel and you repent and you turn and you receive, you you trust. The conditions that God has set for those who would receive his mercy. N.T. Wright uh, compared the process of becoming a follower of Jesus to waking up to an alarm clock. The gospel is the alarm clock. Do you wake up well to your alarm clock? It goes off in the morning and you hear it rings. Some of you, some of you, nobody likes you, but some of you, some of you, when the alarm goes off, you jump out of bed and you say, woohoo, time to go. Nobody likes you, all right? Okay? <laughs> so some of you are like that. Some of you, you ease into the day. Some, you have the experience. Does this ever happen to you? Like the first thought that when your alarm goes off, you look at your clock and immediately try to figure out how many hours will have to go by before you can get back into bed. Do you have that thought sometimes? Or your alarm goes off and you think to yourself, why did I read that other chapter? Why did I watch that other episode? What have I done to myself? You think of those terrible thoughts. It takes you a while to crawl out of bed. Regardless of how long it takes you to get there, there is a difference... There is a definite difference between being asleep and being awake. There's a difference between the two. There is a difference between turning, repenting, and believing and not turning, repenting, and believing. We're focused this morning on the process. And like David, we ignore that process at our peril. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your great mercy to us through the Lord Jesus. We are are thankful to you for new morning mercies that we experienced this morning, the snow that reminds us that through Christ we are washed and made whiter than snow. Father, we, we come before you because we want to be faithful in representing what your word says about receiving your mercy Lord, I pray that you would give us a discerning mind and discerning heart that we would not err like David. That, that you would, like unlike Absalom, make us people who recognize and own and acknowledge and confess our, our sin. You are the perfect God of justice. You will enact perfect justice. And you, through your Son, have justified us as an act of your mercy upon our belief in the Lord Jesus. I thank you for that that great news that we have to proclaim. May we do so joyfully and clearly for the sake of your Son. It's in his name that we pray together, saying, Amen.